This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. David, before we start our podcast, do you know what Feedspot is? Well, I didn't know until I read an email we'd received about Feedspot, which goes about discovering and ranking popular blogs and podcasts like ours. And do you know what they ranked us as? Tell me, Jen. Absolutely. Well, we ranked one of the top 35 in Australia. So we better stop talking and let you listen. Get on with the show. Thanks, Jan. Are you a doggy person? Even if you're not, you probably know that dogs can help people. There are guide dogs and tracker dogs and even trauma dogs. And then there are just pet dogs, small or big hairy dogs. Emily Spur has created Splinter in her novel, A Million Things, Hello and welcome to Published or Not, Emily. Hi, Jan. Thanks for having me. Emily, we first meet Splinter on page three. Read us a little bit, bit about your Splinter. Certainly. Okay. This is where we meet. He follows like a shadow, my Splinter, my pup, my scruffy grey stretch of mutt. I trip over him, wake to his breath on my face. He sits with his big dog head resting on my knee. I look at his brown eyes, lean my face into his and inhale the familiar humid breath, the scent of dog biscuits and bones. And we're going to jump straight on to page 34 and have another paragraph about Splinter. Splinter of the limitless patience. He waits for my breath to steady, for my hands to stop shaking, his big warm body leading into my side. When we're sitting, he's taller than me. His big dog head looks over mine back to the park. My bum's cold and numb, but his gentle panting rocks me, the motion warming. I sink my hand into his fur on his back, defrosting my fingers. His skin feels hot. Oh, so who's the me? The me is Ray, who is our narrator and protagonist, who is 10. She's a, a pretty wise 10. She's had a lot going on in her life. And when we meet her, her mother has gone um, and she knows what's happened to her but is completely unable to face it. So she's carrying on as if nothing has happened. It's the only thing she's able to do. And by her side is Splinter, her dog. Looks after her as well as she looks after him. <laughs> so Ray is a pretty sassy little 10-year-old and she really has a way with words. She can think of other words for walking. Well, she knows about 10 different words for walking and, and some that she just makes up. They're wonderful. They're streeting, avoidulating, stepilating. And she even uses the dictionary to find words like agitated and aimless. She never finds the right word to describe the hurt of you being gone. And, and she's she's obviously a big reader and, and she's a big thinker, I think. She wants to find the meaning behind things and, and she's come up against something that she can't find the meaning behind. Um, so she's falling back on all the things that, um, that she does to find order. She's, you know, making up words, um, collecting things, making the house look right. And she's, she's 10 and, and she's somewhat adrift. Mm. Well, she asks, who would notice if I disappeared? 
and, and surely people would notice, you know, how does she get by at school? It's a great question, isn't it? And I, I think that's kind of one of the central tenets of the book, really, is that we have this notion of community, um, that we look out for each other and we look after each other. But we also live in a world where we're very insular in ourselves um, and, and our small groups. And I think it's perfectly plausible that someone who on the outside looks perfectly put together, they have their lunch, they arrive on time, their homework gets done, they look neat and tidy, um, that no one, if there's no red flags, are not going to look any deeper than that. For a lot of people in many stages of life, I think that that feeling of invisibility is something that, that strikes at the heart of things, I think, too. Um, and certainly that's no different for a 10-year-old. <laughs> Well, you talk about the community before, and of course, there is the nosy next door neighbour, Letty. Uh, how does Ray eventually meet Letty? Against her better judgment, mm. uh, <laughs> Ray has, you know, decided quite logically that she doesn't want anyone looking into her life. She doesn't need friends, friends are trouble. And the next door neighbour, Letty, is, you know, has noticed a few things and made some comments and, and Ray is very determined to keep her at arm's length. And then one day she hears a noise coming from next door and because she's a good kid, you know, she's tough and she wants to look after herself and she doesn't want to be involved, but she's a good kid. And if someone's in trouble, you know, she, she feels obliged. So she goes next door and she listens and she hears someone asking for help and she realizes there's someone in trouble inside the house so she climbs over the back fence and breaks in um, <laughs> which is when she discovers letty's secret this is a quote from the book when she got into the house the smell the musky scalpy thick smell of a living person's filth we find out that Letty is quite the hoarder. Emily Spur, did you do some research on hoarding? Oh, I have, yes. Um, there was quite a, a lot of research and I think just general fascination. I think you can't live in, in a city anywhere in the world without coming across a hoarder or two in your lifetime. And I think that the, the point of fascination for me was never... The hoarding itself, it was always what it indicated or what it was doing um, or why someone would do that. Yeah, it, it very much fit with, with Letty's character. We all learn a lot about hoarding. <laughs> well, it's not quite a friendship, but there are cups of tea or chocolate, hot chocolate on the front veranda and it becomes a, a little bit regular and they learn to a little about each other, that they've both got secrets and they also share a sense of humour. Letty affectionately calls Ray kiddo. What does Ray call Letty? Well, after some thought, you know, I'm, I'm young, well, the logical answer would be goto. goto. <laughs> the other neighbour who becomes curious is Oscar. Oscar is the same age as Ray. He goes to a different school and their family is relatively new to the neighbourhood. And he's a lonely kid. You know, his school is in a different suburb. They've just moved there. He's got no friends in the neighbourhood. 
And I think at heart, he's, he's quite a sweet kid. But that's not, of course, Ray's perception of him because he wants to get close and he wants to ask questions. And none of those are things that are safe. She tries to avoid him, but he keeps leading their chatter. And the first conversation they have is when he wants to explain about his name. So who's he named after? He's named after Oscar Wilde with an E. (laughs) This is really lovely. So they become book swapping, not friends. She doesn't want to be friends. But um, she does read some Oscar Wilde stories and talks about them, a quote from the book, his stories had a sadness of an old painting, all shadowy and soft with warm blanket colour. You know, it's it, it's quite a nice description there. But when Oscar does barge into Ray's house, he comments on the terrible smell. Ray has tried to disguise this in all different ways. She has. She has many, many um, oil burners or vaporizers. She has incense sticks. She's discovered mosquito coils. Air freshers have been used, you know, more than anything anyone should. Um, <laughs> there's been bleach poured on towels and left lying around. She's she's uh, explored all avenues of, of covering up bad smells, yes. <laughs> so the bad smells, everybody thinks, may come from Letty's hoarding next door. And the yeah. council want to do something about that. But Ray has always got plans. And this brings us back to Splinter again. Can Emily Spur, can you read from page 156, please, from A Million Things? I go in and open the bag of blood and bone. It stinks. Stick in the back of your throat sink, stinks. And it's heavy. I drag it out. Splinter shoves his nose into the bag. I try to push him away, but he's having none of it. He snuffles and snorts like a pig until a giant sneeze forces his head out. He's almost cross-eyed with pleasure. I tip the bag up, spilling the lot into a stinky pile next to the fence. I leave Splinter pushing his back through it and get the rake from the tool shed. I rake it around the flowers and plants, pushing the excess across the grass, covering as much of the yard as I can. Splinter's nearly melting in excitement. I water it in. I've given up trying to keep splints dry, then pack the tools away and shut the small shed door. I stand on the back step and look at what I've done. The flowers look freshly planted, the soil all turned over. The place stinks of fertiliser. It's clean. No poo, no bones. Grass mowed. I grab splints away from his back rolling and drag him inside and shut the door. Just a normal backyard. A normal backyard, a normal life, a normal community, not. The book has short chapter headings counting the days after Ray lost her mum. There are many ways the book could end. And just a warning, my tissues came out very readily. Mm. And Emily, you wrote in the acknowledgements that you've never met so many people so delighted that you'd made them cry. <laughs> yes, uh, it's true. And I never quite know what to say. Do I say thank you or I'm sorry? <laughs> um, I think one of my favourites was someone had described it as I was down on all fours 
crying like a choking constipated donkey, um, which <laughs> was very beautiful, beautifully described. So it, it's had some very uh, intense reactions from people, for sure. Well, you were shortlisted for the Unpublished Manuscript Prize in the 2020 Victorian Premier's Awards. 2020, not so long ago. So what no. happened between then and now having this book published by text? <laughs> what, COVID? <laughs> so after I was shortlisted, um, I approached um, some publishers and there was interest and I eventually settled with text where I'm very, very happy to be. And uh, then there was sitting around for a while. It has been sold into the States, so it's it's uh, released in there uh, in August. So the, un the unpublished manuscript basically held there weren't too many plot changes or no the only thing that I changed is I, I probably short uh, shortened the start so that that things sort of happen a bit faster but otherwise essentially it's it's almost exactly the same book so there's not a lot of change um, that said that doesn't make me some writing genius a lot of work went into it before it got to the VPLAs so yeah. well both 10-year-old Ray and next-door neighbour Letty have secrets and houses but not homes. Emily Spur has written about isolation, Splinter the Dog and love in a million things. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for having me. And now it's David's turn. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. But what if those two minds are Juliet and Romeo? And what if the setting is the future? And what if Juliet actually falls for a swarthy fellow from off the moors? Catherine Barker takes us into the past and the future in her novel, Waking Romeo, where the course of true love, because of intersecting timelines, never did run smooth. So Catherine, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. What an amazing lead-in. You've certainly upset the apple cart here. According to your narrative, who wrote the story of Juliet and Romeo and how did Shakespeare get hold of it? Well, it was obviously a headstrong young woman, David. Like I always felt that it should have been the case. I thought that rethinking who wrote Romeo and Juliet could be a really interesting way of relooking at that story. So... We have a young woman instead of a middle-aged man. And this young woman goes by the name of Jules, but she's in a compromised position at the beginning of the novel, which is set, by the way, in 2083. Yes, yeah, so I decided to set Waking Romeo two years after the failed romance with Romeo. Uh, so we're dealing with a young woman who has effectively lived through the trauma of the love affair we have described in Romeo and Juliet. And she's, in fact, writing the narrative of her own failed love story. She is, and she's set it in the past with lots of, you know, frilly clothes because the truth was just a bit too uncomfortable, which gave me lots of really fun leeway. The idea that the actual story of the love affair is being written by a girl in the future who is deliberately writing it in the style of Shakespeare because she's a massive fan, it's, it's a pretty fun space to occupy. And you actually then are able to tackle one of the more imponderable questions posed by 
Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and that is of Juliet's age, and Jules actually changes Juliet's age. For what reasons? In the book, she changes the age. In my version, she was older, but she changes the age and makes the fictitious character younger to 13, which is the age that Shakespeare had Juliet as. And she was really reflecting upon the idea that uh, what it says about her, that she thought that some of her choices were perhaps better suited to somebody younger. So I, I suppose one of the things that I found uncomfortable and always found a bit uncomfortable was that all of this had happened at the tender age of 13. And I suppose I was thinking about my readership and I didn't really want to be having those events happening for somebody so young. So for me as a writer, keeping in mind my audience, I, I didn't feel comfortable with that age. So uh, I took some creative license and made her a little older. But Jules is also thinking of herself in the sense that I've got to make this character younger because I can't account for my own impetuous behaviour, which seems so immature. Exactly. So uh, I found that Jules arrived at the same conclusions that I did in relation to the idea of somebody going through all this at, at the age of 13. And I had to really think about how I covered that off. So you're exactly right. She was looking at this impetuousness and deciding that this, these kinds of actions were suited to somebody perhaps younger than she. Now, there's something else going on in 2083. We have the power of time travel. In 2083, my version, we do have time travel, but by and large, it's time travel in one direction only. So... The idea and the conceit of the novel is that humanity invented the capacity to travel forward in time, but everybody was so impatient jumping to the future that no one stuck around long enough to complete the technology that would have enabled humans to move back in time. But there's a problem with this time travel in one direction, in fact, several problems, as you say, they don't take the time to look at how they could travel back in time but they're never satisfied with the future. They keep jumping forward and society almost disappears, but also they can jump forward and be in danger. Exactly. So one of the things I wanted to explore as the concept was the idea that if, if you had the capacity to jump forward, perhaps a lot of people would. Perhaps people would stop investing in the now. Perhaps people would just assume that tomorrow is better. Perhaps they would assume that everybody else would stick around and put in the hard work and they would just jump forward and reap the rewards. So for me, that was uh, an opportunity to explore the metaphor of not investing in the now, which I think environmentally speaking is a big issue that we have. But precisely right, uh, there is another hazard, which is if you can jump forward in time, that doesn't mean you can move in time and space. So, you know, imagine that you have your time travel pod, it's somewhere nice and safe, you jump forward 100 years, but in the intervening century, something got moved into that spot and two things can't occupy the same space in the same moment in time. So it's effectively obliteration. I was interested in exploring the idea of, well, it sounds fine and dandy that you can move forward in time, but what happened to that spot in the intervening years could mean that you're actually putting your life at risk. There are also another group here called the Dead Enders, which can actually move both ways in time. Yes, in the story, they're, they're quite secret and we learn about them 
but the capacity to move back in time is, is not common knowledge. Uh, their technology is different. Um, and the dead enders, in fact, are, they're a concept that came to me years ago. And what occurred to me is that the only people you could pull out of a timeline without creating ripple effects were people who had died and who had never been found. You could pull them out at the last minute, revive them, and not change the course of future events. And I'd always just sort of liked that idea. And when Waking Romeo started forming, uh, the idea of the dead enders sort of snuck in there and then became completely integral to the plot. But the dead enders have the task of basically saving the future. Exactly. So they're, they're trying to fix the timeline one tweak at a time. But I suppose the irony is when you have a world that's so interconnected, there's no single thing that goes wrong. And so you can't just go back and fix that one big event that if it had never happened, uh, the world would have been fine. It's actually much more complicated and nuanced and it's all the tiny moments that they're trying to massage so that there's no cataclysmic disaster. And one of these dead enders goes by the name of Ellis. What can you tell us about Ellis? Well, I'll, I'll choose my words carefully, um, but this story, uh, I suppose anyone that reads the back of it will know, doesn't just involve Romeo and Juliet, but, but also involves Wuthering Heights. So Ellis is somebody known to Emily Bronte, and he, I suppose, has his own role to play in terms of the literary canon. So there are two works of literature now that come together and both deal with intense passion. But we have another problem here as well. You're travelling in time and this does awkward things to the concept of tragedy. I thought I knew what tragedy was. I thought I understood its structure, the arcs, the loss, the moral to the story, except there's no moral here, no poetic meaning, no lessons learned. This is real, real tragedy. It has stench and gore and a terrifying mess about it. If you can travel in time, you can obliterate the concept of tragedy, can't you? Well, in theory, I suppose you can, but I rather suspect what the characters might discover is that there's love and pain in every human existence. And we can try and obliterate tragedy, but sometimes the things that hurt us are part of our own personal arc. So I suppose one of the things that Jules perhaps discovers is that she needs the bad times in order to grow and become who she's meant to be. So I suppose uh, one of the things I really love about time travel stories is sometimes you can change your fate and, and sometimes actually even the act of trying to change it results in the same net outcome. So I don't know that with time travel we would ever obliterate tragedy. We might just end up with a new kind. But the reader would be faced with the challenge of looking at the concept of tragedy you also then develop other themes like destiny and choice and fate. But here's another one. A little sparrow appears in the novel and it has a particular relevance in some ways. There is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. So was that sparrow deliberately put there? 
that sparrow was deliberately put there. There are a few little references to the sparrow and uh, the half-painted sparrow and and the fall and the fall of the sparrow because uh, one of the things I had a lot of fun with, I'm ashamed to say, is uh, Shakespeare is so rich with, with language and quotes and there were so many themes so beautifully explored. And one of the, the, the things I took pleasure in was weaving in little aspects that people may or may not pick up on. I'm, I'm thrilled that you picked up on that one, David. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because who is this book for? If it's for an adolescent reader, they may not yet have read Romeo and Juliet or Wuthering Heights. Uh, are you expecting them to know those works or are you suggesting they might like to go out and discover them for themselves? Well, I'm absolutely not expecting them to know those works. One of the things that uh, was really important to me in writing this book was that you should be able to enjoy it without knowing either. Maybe the readership knows that in Romeo and Juliet, they both kill themselves in the end. But if they know that much, then that's enough. In relation to Wuthering Heights, look, maybe you've heard of Heathcliff and the Moors, maybe you haven't, but the idea is it doesn't make any difference either way. I wrote the first draft of this based on my memories of those books at, at a really top level because I read them both when I was uh, a teenager. And when I reread them and studied them through subsequent drafts, I was really careful that nothing came in that assumed you had read either book. Now, if readers want to then go and read Romeo and Juliet and Wuthering Heights, then that's amazing. But one of the things that was really important to me in writing Waking Romeo was the fact that I was responding to those love stories and the fact that upon reflection, I don't think that the examples they set are particularly healthy ones. Well, I'm afraid we have actually run out of time. We could have kept on talking about Emily Bronte and the quotes from Wuthering Heights. We could have gone into the references to Shakespeare, the sonnets get a look in and all of those sorts of things. There are questions about time travel, which uh, pose problems, especially for a writer trying to control a narrative. But as I said, we have run out of time. The book is actually called Waking Romeo. It's Romeo that's uh, drunk the draft and is asleep. The novelist is Catherine Barker, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Catherine, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.